Well, thank you very much, David. Uh, terrific to be with you this morning. What a gorgeous part of the world you live in uh, here in the Adelaide Hills, and uh, it's really uh, terrific to be here. So I'm going to spend the first 10 minutes or so this morning telling you a bit about uh, my journey and uh, what's led me over to the UK and everything like that. It's quite a bizarre story. If, if it has ever happened to anyone else, uh, I don't know about them. So uh, I'll tell you a bit of my story for 10 minutes or so, and then we're going to jump into a a story that Jesus told that will really bless you and help you today. So I will, but I will start with an ad. Uh, So a couple of years ago, I realised that if I stood before God at the end of my life and he asked me, why did you never write a book? I realised that I wouldn't be able to answer that question Um, because he's given me the kind of ability to do so. So I wrote a book and uh, I brought it with me today and it's called Ultimate Blessing and every Christian I've ever met wants to be blessed but not every Christian I've ever met understands what Jesus said about blessing and this book is to help you to get your head around what Jesus says a blessed life is all about and uh, I've been really encouraged with the feedback that I've been given. So I've brought the very end of the first print run with me. So there's only eight copies. So I'd really encourage you. So uh, June, is, uh, we'll be selling them uh, after the service. And because there's only eight, I really encourage you to use uh, the sharpest elbows you've got to just make your way to the front of the queue and uh, pull whatever stunt, pull whatever trick needs to be pulled, get yourself a copy and then you'll be blessed. You can repent for that stuff later on, okay? So just uh, make sure you get a copy uh, and that would uh, that will really uh, encourage you, I hope. So uh, what happened to me was that I was, uh, a, I grew up in, spent my first 23 years of life in Sydney and then I moved to Melbourne, age 23, and lived uh, 16 years in Melbourne, and I married Catherine in Melbourne, and uh, I had a great heart. Uh, became a Christian at age twelve. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but uh, was when I started high school. There was a Christian group that met on Friday lunchtimes at my high school, and a couple of friends of mine decided to go along and kind of dragged me along with them. Or it's more of a case of I didn't fancy hanging around in the playground by myself, so I just went along. And uh, I came to Christ right there as a 12-year-old. And there was hardly a single adult involved in the whole thing. The group was led by the 17-year-old senior students. And uh, by God's grace, I came to Christ. And then, you know, grew in Christ and really decided around age 16 that I really just wanted to commit my life to ministry, being a missionary or a pastor or something like that. And, you know, studied Bible college after high school and Worked as a youth pastor for a couple of years in Sydney and loved that. And so I just assumed that 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 path would just carry on and upwards. And then at age 26, all the doors around me were closed, uh, which wasn't my plan at all. Uh, And yet that's the situation I found myself in. So I just shrugged my shoulders and thought, well, I I best do something else. And worked as a public servant for a bit, which was dull. So then I retrained when did a law degree and worked as a lawyer and uh, that was great and really enjoyed that. And I just assumed that the ministry season of my life had passed and that God had a different path for me and that that's what I'd do for the rest of my life. And then 
uh, at age in 2012, uh, when I'm now I'm in my late 30s, all of a sudden uh, things started to go a bit crazy, and my wife, uh, she, she's pretty good at hearing from God, is Catherine, and she announced that she had a dream, and that she had an overwhelming desire to be a missionary in Eastern Europe, in particular in a nation called Moldova, which is part of the former Soviet Union. Uh, a lot of problems with um, human trafficking and children, uh, trafficking children and everything in that part of the world, in that country in particular. And uh, she had this immense burden that had gone from zero to a hundred in like a minute. Uh, and we had to go to Moldova, like, come on, pack your bag, like, get with it. And I'm like, now, all, all of those of you, all the married men in the room, I'm sure you've all gone through that season in life where your wife wants to be a missionary to Eastern Europe, you know, <laughs> no doubt so many of us have been there. Or, or, or is it just me? <laughs> How did I draw that short straw? Like, what was with that? And so I'm like, Dal, if we rocked up there tomorrow, can we speak the language? No. Do we know anyone? No. So even with all the goodwill in the world, what could we possibly accomplish for God over there? So perhaps we should remain in Melbourne and enjoy the middle class lifestyle to which we've become, you know, we've become familiar with. And deep down I was terrified that, that God had actually spoken to her and that he would shortly speak to me. Um, and so we kind of endured a three-month... Cold War would be a bit of an exaggeration, but a, a three-month sort of difficult period, I guess you might call it, where she, deep down, really wanted to be on the next plane to Moldova and I really, deep down, wanted this whole thing to just vanish. Uh, and then we were... We're at an event that our church was running at the time in Melbourne and I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and say these words. Move to England, plant a church and that church will be the base for the missions work into Moldova. That was a life-changing moment. Uh, And so I said to Catherine, this is what I feel the Lord's just spoken to me and she said, That'll work. (laughs) And so from that moment, it was just, you know those those times, rare times when you're driving that you just get green light after green light after green light? Like that's what it was like. And there was about 13 months in between me getting that word from the Holy Spirit in June 2012 and us touching down at Manchester Airport in... uh, July 2013, uh, to start our journey as church planters in England and uh, then supporting missions work into Moldova in Eastern Europe. And it was, uh, it was an astonishing season. I've never, never known a season of answered prayer like that. Our first, you know, our last however many months in Australia and our first how many months in England and God was just with us. And it's just been awesome. It's just been fantastic. Um, God specifically directed us to this town called Halifax, which is 
far from the most obvious place in all of England to plant a church. So it's a town the size of Ballarat or Bendigo, about 80,000 people, and it's stuck in between, it's in the north of England, it's in uh, Yorkshire, stuck in between uh, Leeds and Manchester, and some of the nearby cities. And, but that's, the Holy Spirit was unmistakable that that was where we were meant to be. And so we uh, started to say hi to some of the church leaders uh, in the, you know, who were also in the town. And you know, we explained about how you know, we were planning a church here and we we're going to do missions ultimately in, into Moldova and everything. And one of the churches that we told most people when you say that, they go, Moldova? I don't know. Um, but there was one church we went to and we said, and they said, oh yeah, we sent a team to Moldova last year. Oh, of course you did. Um, and so this church had connections with Moldovan pastors and they ended up going again uh, about 18 months later and Catherine went with them. And uh, we've, God has supernaturally uh, linked us with, some, uh, with a church in northern Moldova and, uh, and with other Moldovan pastors um, and ministers as well. And you know, he will ultimately uh, continue to lead us uh, into making a difference in that nation. And uh, so that's, that's been fantastic. And so I've been to Moldova twice now. Catherine's been four times. And uh, that's awesome. Uh, but at the same time, we've, we've been planning a church and, and growing a church right there in the north of England. England is, uh, at present, is far more secular than Australia. Uh, healthy churches in England, most churches are elderly, declining uh, full of liberal theology, uh, don't preach the gospel because they don't believe in the gospel. And uh, thank God there are, are exceptions, but there's certainly not the rule. And uh, you know, here in Australia, there's you know, lots and lots of strong uh, churches that are unashamed to preach the gospel and everything. But the situation in England is, is not, it's not good. It's not healthy. And so we really feel called to make a difference. God gave us the name Northern Lights Church, which is a pretty strange name. I, I think it is anyway. Um, but we realise that, that that's the name God's given us because he's, he's wrapped up our mission in that name. And, and we feel that our mission is to light up the north of England for Christ. And so we feel called to be a church that plants churches. Do you know, if you, if you want to reach Australians, you can reach two-thirds of all Australians if you simply plant five churches and put them in the centre of each of the five mainland capital cities, boom, two-thirds of the nation reached at the, with just five churches. right? But in England, the population is far more spread out. There's one megacity in London, sure, but most people in the UK live in a town, not a city. Uh, and to, there's 251 towns all throughout the north of England, and most of them have very few strong Bible-believing churches. And this is the area that God's called us to. And uh, so we've, by God's grace, we've planted one daughter church already. We're launching a second daughter church in November. And uh, we really, you know, we just constantly cry out, God, give us workers to bring in the harvest. And God has continued to answer that prayer. And some of the people he's sent along has just been astonishing. So... That's a bit of my journey. That's uh, what took me from 
Melbourne uh, all the way to Yorkshire with you know, trips into Moldova and everything like that. It's, um, uh, it's been an absolutely wild journey and I've loved it. I've truly, absolutely loved it. There's a verse in Psalms that says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. And I would rather have one day in Halifax where God wants me to be than a thousand days in any other part of the world. Uh, so it's just been fantastic to go with God on this journey and to live the kind of uh, fruitful life that you know, he's destined for me to have. There's, there's one part of the Bible that as, since I've uh, been a church planner and since I've been a pastor, there's one part of the Bible that, that used to not really bother me all that much but has, has without doubt become possibly my least favourite part of the Bible and that's what I'm going to turn to right now. Jesus tells the story of the parable of the sower and I'll tell you why it's not my favourite uh, in a minute. But firstly, I want to talk about uh, yeah, one of the things I love about the Olympics is the marathon. Like I know, I know, you know everyone gets excited about the 100-metre sprint and everything like that, and, and that's all well and good, but it's over like 10 seconds after it starts. Uh, but the marathon, I just find the marathon absolutely compelling. It's like I would rather watch a marathon than a movie because the, the way the marathon, it's about the same length, right? A bit over two hours. But the way that the marathon, you know, you have one group and you, you, know, you see the breakaway form and will they get caught and all that. So I, I just think it's fantastic. But you know what you can absolutely be certain of with the Olympic marathon is that the, the athlete who is leading after 100 metres is going to be nowhere near the gold medal 42 kilometres later. Right? It's not about how strong you start, is it? You know, if you're 10 metres ahead of the pack uh, at the 500 metre mark, you know, what does that count for? <laughs> nothing. Right? That means nothing at all. It's all about how you finish. And the Christian life's a bit like that. I've now been a Christian for 32 years. And it's interesting to see some of the people who I knew when I was an early Christian and some of them are finishing strong. But not all of them are. Not all of them are. And Jesus tells a story about how some people go on in the Christian life and become fruitful. But not all of us make it. Of course, I'm talking about churches down the road, right? In this church, we're all making it, right? We're doing awesome, right? Um, but not everyone is fruitful and makes it to where God is calling them to be. So I want to give you some stuff today that's going to help you endure and be fruitful as you carry on the, the marathon that is the Christian life. So this is the story that Jesus told. If you go to Mark chapter 4, verse 3. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. 
But the plant soon wilted under the hot sun, and since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants, so they produced no grain. Still other seed fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. And so what happens after that is that the disciples then come to Jesus and they say, great story, Jesus. The seeds in the soil loved that bit. That was great. Did you see? Did you see? I, thought, I thought, Jesus, I thought today we had a terrific response. I thought, yeah, that, no, that was particularly strong, I reckon, Jesus. And you know what? Now, Jesus, uh, that, that story, I've, I was talking to someone who didn't really understand it. And look, I, I could have explained it to them, but I thought if, if you give me your explanation, that, that'll be like even sharper than mine. So for, for the sake of this person who I was talking to, Jesus, would you, would you just give me the, the meaning of the story so I can then, then go and help, help that person? And I think Jesus said, Guys, I don't think you understood my story, did you? And the disciples, I'm sure the disciples would have said, Oh, yeah, no, Jesus, we, we got the story. We got the story. We got the, most, most of the story. Most, some, of, some of the story. No, no, we, we didn't understand. We didn't understand. So Jesus says, okay, I'll explain the story to you. Uh, and so Jesus goes on and he says this. Uh, go down to verse 15. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. So what I'm going to take you on today, I'm calling this the road to fruitfulness. And some people never even take the first step. Some people hear the message and it goes in one ear and straight out the other. And they never even take the first step. This is the marathon runner who pulls their hamstring during the warm-up. right? Or this is the person who sleeps in and doesn't even make it across the start line to the marathon. They took the wrong train. They ended up in the wrong town. They, uh, you know, something went amiss. The wife went into labour. Or for whatever reason, they never even made it across the start line of the marathon, much less did they make it to the end. Now, if you've decided to spend your Sunday morning in this church, there's a high chance that at some point in the past, you made a decision to embrace the message and commit your life to Christ. If that's the case for you, good job. You made it across the start line. Lots of people hear the Christian message and never make it across the start line, never actually commit their life to Christ at all. But if you've at some point made a decision that you're going to follow Christ, you've started. You're off and running. You have completed step one on the road to fruitfulness, which is simply this, embrace the message. Now, if that doesn't describe you, then you know what? You could make a decision this morning to take that step, 
Today could be the day that you decide to commit your life to Christ. And after I've preached at the end of the service, anyone who wants prayer for anything can come up here. And if you want to take that step today and embrace the message of Christ and become a Christian, I'd love nothing more than to talk and pray with you about that decision. But that is the first step on the road to fruitfulness. Embrace the message. Then Jesus says this, verse 15, The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. Um, Oh, so, yes, yeah, sorry, it's the next, next sentence. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems. Problems, hey, problems. Mm. Christians are not immune from having problems. Now, that's possibly something that you're aware of if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes. I once, I once had the privilege of having a chat to a guy who had been a Christian, had committed his life to Christ, I think 11 days or so, about a week and a half before I was chatting to him. And I said to him, how's it going? And he said, Oh, enemy's been having a go at me. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what happens. Because <laughs> yeah. he's not really happy <laughs> that you've made a decision to become a Christian. And, and from the exasperated tone in his voice, it was... It was as if he was expecting the enemy to stop having a go at him somewhere around the, the one-week mark. And the fact that he'd had to endure the enemy having a go at him for a full week and a half was just like a bit over the top. But no, as Christians, we have problems. On the road to fruitfulness, you're going to have to need to cope with problems. You skip down a couple of slides. There we go. Cope with problems. And someone who's a brand new Christian can sometimes think that by coming to God, what has happened is that uh, they have a God who acts as a, a bit like the genie in the lamp, who can, who can, and simply by praying rather than wishing, although sometimes there's not much of a difference as what you'd hope there would be, um, simply we can pray and God will cause all our problems to evaporate. That's not how the Christian life works, is it? We have problems. And as as the years go by, sometimes the problems increase rather than decrease. We struggle with marriage problems. We struggle with financial problems. We struggle with family problems. We have relationship problems. We have workplace problems. We have problems with our physical health. We have mental health problems. Problems abound. Here's the thing, folks. God wants to build your character 
in the midst of your problems. Oh, that's so good. I'm going to say it again. God wants to build your character in the midst of your problems. You are called to worship God in the middle of your problems. Walk with God through your problems. Right? Problems abound. You will one day be problem free. And that's called heaven. Right? But since you're at present on earth, you will have to cope with problems if you're going to have the life of fruitfulness that God wants you to have. And you know what? You can do it. You can do it. God will help you through all the problems that life and the devil throw at you. He will help you get there. But some Christians get upset with God. They get disappointed with God because he hasn't taken away their problems. You're going to have to make a decision to worship God through your problems and not get upset with God for not taking them away. You can do that, folks. You can do that. Of the same person with the same seed, Jesus says this, they fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. Next slide. Now there's step three. There we go. Step three, cope with persecution. See, the thing is, you've got no control over how the other people in your world react to your decision to follow Christ. Sometimes, you know, some friends and family, when you decide to become a Christian, you know, in our day and age, often the reaction that you'll get is, if that's what you want to do, that's lovely. If you find being a Christian, if you find church attendance to be helpful and inspiring, then good for you. Um, that's the way that people often react uh, when someone makes a decision to become a Christian in our day and age. If it works for you, that's lovely. But then, if you decide to be like a serious Christian, it's like, whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on a minute now. Well, you're giving, hang on, you're giving the church some of your money like, like, like more than loose change? Whoa, whoa, what are you doing there? What you're, oh my goodness, you, you're actually... You're telling other people that you think that they can become Christians too. Hang on, hang on. You don't have to go shove it down people's throats. Come on now. Or, uh, or even, what, you're not going to drink with us? What? Are you judging me? Uh, no, it's actually just a decision that I'm making about how I'm going to live. <gasps> don't judge me. I'm, I'm not. It's not about you. <laughs> You have no control over how people will react to your faith. And part of being a Christian is coping with persecution. And you can cope with the persecution that comes your way. You know, it's, I met, when I travelled to Moldova on the last trip that I did, I met a fellow who was a pastor in the Baptist church. And he came to Christ in the 1980s when 
when Moldova was still a part of the Soviet Union. And the whole reason that he came to Christ was because he lived next door to a Baptist pastor. Now, this fellow's own father was a committed atheist, a committed communist, a member of the Communist Party, but he was intrigued by the neighbour, the neighbour's deep commitment to Christ. And so even as a child, he decided that he was going to become a Christian. And so they would, uh, they had a Bible in uh, Russian, a Russian-speaking uh, part of uh, part of Moldova, and so that, uh, other people within that Baptist church would write out by hand uh, some of the different letters of the New Testament, and they would distribute them around their little underground church. And there was a strict rule that uh, you know lots of people within the church had to have uh, different parts of the Bibles that they had, had transcribed and everything like that. Because if one person had it all and they got caught, then bang, the, the whole thing's gone. And so he came to Christ as a child and every now and then his father would catch him reading the Bible and would burn whatever snippet of the Bible that he had and yet he never wavered in his faith. Um, and today is, uh, you know, is running a ministry that uh, is making a big difference uh, in Moldova. You know, that is the kind of faithfulness that our brothers and sisters in Christ have shown. In, you know, that was in the, in the 20th century. But the entire history of the church is filled with examples of people who coped with unbelievable persecution. And there probably there possibly are some people in your life who are going to make following Jesus quite difficult for you. But guess what, folks? If people can cope with that sort of communist persecution, then you and I can cope with whatever life uh, in the West throws at us. Cope with persecution. That's step three. Then Jesus goes on. The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life. Step four is to cope with the cares of this life, the worries of this life. You know, I find that being a 44-year-old Christian is pretty different to being a teenage Christian. Life has more worries than it used to. These days, the, the worries in my life involve you know, money and parenting and marriage and all, all this adult stuff. Right? When, I was, when I was a teenager, the, the worries in my life was getting the latest computer game on my Commodore 64. Right? That's, those are the sort of worries that I was dealing with in the 1980s. And, uh, but nowadays, worries, worries are on a whole different scale as an adult. And the great threat that is posed by some of the things that Jesus talks about in the third seed is that they, they don't instantly kill our walk with God. They don't cause us to abandon our faith in an instant, but they slowly choke and squeeze the life, the, the faith out of us. 
We've got to cope with the worries of this life. At some point, the Christian life has some boring bits. You remember in the Sydney 2000 Olympics, the marathon course started in some of the really pleasant parts of the city near the harbour and early on they went over the harbour bridge and that was all really spectacular and everything like that. But of course, because the race finished at the Olympic Stadium and the Olympic Stadium in Homebush is about like 15 kilometres or something uh, west of the city and the part of Sydney where the Olympic Stadium is, it's pretty ugly. Uh, and so there was some sections of the, the marathon towards the end where there was no attractive scenery. It was pretty boring. And if you're running a marathon, you know, the first half might be a bit interesting and everything like that, but I mean, it's 42 kilometres of marathon. And you know what the really interesting thing is a bit about, say, the 32nd kilometre? Or the 33rd kilometre? Nothing. There's nothing interesting at all. It's just the same as the one before. It's boring, right? It's just the same old, same old, right? But that's the great challenge in the Christian life is sometimes there are bits where life is just much the same as it has been. But the worries of this life can in those moments choke your faith can threaten your faith. And you and I need to rise above that. And that's when having those disciplines in place, that's when when your habit of opening the Bible by yourself, that's where your habit of spending time in prayer is going to sustain you through those seasons where the worries of this life might come in and choke the vitality of your faith. And you and I can cope with those sorts of worries that might threaten that. Then he says uh, another thing, that the next, very next phrase, uh, he says, The message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth. Uh, the lure of wealth. That's step five. Resist the lure of wealth. Every Christian has to deal with money and it will test you. I'm fond of saying that that money is like dynamite. When you use it as the maker intends you to use it, it is powerful. And when you make a mistake with it, you can do yourself damage with a capital D. You will be tested by how you deal with money. And each of us has to make a decision to resist the lure of wealth. I once heard a preacher say many years ago that you can't love money if you're giving it away. And I thought to myself, oh, that sounds rather simplistic. You can't love money if you're giving it away. And after further reflection, study and some 20-something years of growth and development, I've concluded you can't love money if you're giving it away. It truly is that simple. You can't love money if you're giving it away. It doesn't matter how much you have. What matters is that you're giving some of what you have. 
And only then will you be able to resist the lure of wealth. Uh, some of you might have read a book called The Purpose Driven Life uh, by a Californian pastor named uh, Rick Warren. And uh, a terrific book that I'd recommend highly. Um, but I once heard uh, Rick explaining a bit about that book. It, it, sold, it sold upwards of 30 million copies, which makes it, uh, regardless of the fact that it's a good Christian book, it, it simp- that fact alone means that it is one of the best-selling books in human history. It's a, a truly massive quantity of books to sell, and that has made Rick Warren extremely wealthy. And so Rick and his wife, many years ago, made a decision that they would increase the amount that they gave as a percentage every year regardless and so some, some years they would increase their percentage by you know, a really quite small amount, but in other years they were able to increase it by a large amount. And after uh, he wrote such a high-selling book, uh, he was able to, his, at the time I heard him speak, he said that we've just increased our giving to 91.5% of our income. Awesome. <laughs> How good is that? They're fantastic. And then he said, do you know why God chose me to write such a best-selling book? Because he knew what I'd do with the money. Because he had that heart before he was made wealthy. You have to resist the lure of wealth if you're going to be fruitful for God. Every single one of you faces that test to resist the lure of wealth. And then the next thing Jesus says, he says, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things so that no fruit is produced. The desire for other things. What's the desire for other things? Yeah, folks, I think there's a messiness to the Christian life. If you want life to be really neat and orderly and systematic and planned, then, yeah, I just don't know that the Holy Spirit's really going to let you get away with that. Uh, Life is messy. You know what I'd love my weekends to revolve around, right? I love watching sport. Like, if there are a grass surface that professional athletes are running around on and there's a ball somewhere then I'm intrigued. I don't care what it is. If it involves grass, professional athletes and a ball, I find it compelling, right? And I would love, I'd love nothing more than to spend the bulk of every weekend watching this sport, that sport, the other sport. But the desire for other things would choke my fruitfulness for Christ. And so, so often I find myself spending spare time with people, with people who, who need, you know, who need some help, need some love, need some encouragement, and the desire for other things, it just has to be put aside if you're going to be fruitful. Loving people is inconvenient. You know, earlier the call went out, 
to cook a few meals for a family that's got a newborn. And some of you might have instantly thought, that's inconvenient to me, I won't do it. Desire for other things can choke our fruitfulness. Loving people is just sometimes inconvenient. You're planning something comfortable, planning something relaxing, but there's a person in front of you in need. If you're going to be fruitful, you set aside your own desires and you meet the need that God's put in front of you. If you can clear these six hurdles, if you can embrace the message, cope with problems, cope with persecution, deal with the worries of this life, resist the lure of wealth, resist the desire for other things, then... You can be fruitful. Verse 20. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. Folks, that is the life that you can have. You can be fruitful. And what fruitfulness looks like for you is going to be different to what fruitfulness looks like for the person next to you. But what it looks like for you is going to be glorious. It's going to be precisely the destiny that God has for you. What I love about the thing that separates the Olympic marathon from all the other road races in the world, there's lots of famous marathons. have one in what, New York, Boston, Berlin, London. Only the Olympic marathon ends in a stadium filled with tens of thousands of cheering fans. What a brilliant way to end the marathon. Yeah, the the glorious thing about the Christian life, folks, it says in the Bible that we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. There are people cheering you on. All of heaven is cheering you on. All of heaven wants you to be fruitful as a Christian. right? And you can do it. You can do it. And all you've got to do is that when God interrupts your life, you simply say yes to him. And God came crashing into my life in 2012. And I was somehow, by God's grace, I was somehow able to respond by saying yes. Yes, Lord, I will do that. I will do what you call me to do and that's the path that I've been on. And why the reason I hate this passage is because it says to me that as a pastor, it doesn't matter how good my church is, doesn't matter how good our follow-up is, doesn't matter how good our small group network is, some of the people won't make it. That not every person who starts the Christian life is going to finish strong. But I thank God that this church is going to be full of people who are going to finish strong, who are going to be fruitful, are going to clear those six hurdles and live the fruitful life that God is calling you to live. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. And I hope this morning I've encouraged you to clear a few hurdles. I hope I've encouraged you to finish strong 
and to be the person that God wants you to be. I'm just going to pray now and we'll finish our service in a minute. Dear Jesus, just thank you for the potential to be fruitful that lies in each of us. And so I pray, Lord, that right across this room right now, that your spirit would move in the hearts of people who are standing in front of one of those hurdles and are umming and ahhing about whether they're going to clear it or crash into it. So, Lord, I just pray that right now your spirit would come and lift us, Lord, blow on us and take us over those hurdles and take us towards the finish line. Take us to the fruitful destiny that you have for us. Lord, do that this morning, we ask, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to hand back to David right now. Look forward to chatting with as many as you can as I can afterwards. Thanks, David. Thank you so much, John. Um, I've got a little saying that is, you are unique just like everybody else. Well, that was a uniquely John Warren message today, and it was great. Uh, really practical, really encouraging, really challenging, really helpful. So thank you so much, John. We're going to sing, uh, worship the Lord, give thanks. Prayer ministry team, no chairs today, but uh, if you're on duty, if you could come down here. John's going to come over here. If you'd like to come down, if you want to start the marathon today, just come down and say, I want to start this marathon, and the person will pray with you. If there's a hurdle, something that John's mentioned, that you think, that's me, crowded out by worries, I've got problems... I'm holding on to my money too tightly, whatever. You just want to come down and say, hey, that touched my life. Would you pray with me? Just come down and one of the prayer ministry team would pray. But let's all stand together and give God thanks as we sing.